Listener supported. WNYC Studios. From WNYC Studios, I'm Brian Lehrer. This is my Daily Politics Podcast. It's Monday, January 8th. It's the Brian Lehrer Show on WNYC. Good morning, everyone. Happy January 8th. 2024. Did you do anything to commemorate January 6th over the weekend? Maybe binge watch CNN or MSNBC or watch former Capitol Police officer Harry Dunn launch his run for Congress from the district where he lives in Maryland after becoming a little famous for his January 6th committee testimony about fending off rioters while being called racist names for his efforts. For his part, former President Trump marked the anniversary with a campaign stop in Iowa. Don't know if you paid attention to that over the weekend. The Iowa caucus is there, of course, just one week from today. And for those of you who are inclined to not pay attention to Trump saying outrageous things anymore because that's just what he does, uh, don't give him any attention, he does keep going further in ways that more and more I'm seeing professional Trump watchers, political analysts, people like that, find very concerning for what a second Trump term might be like. So, for example, he used to say some version of that the people who rioted at the Capitol were wrong to do so, but that he didn't ask them to. But now he doesn't acknowledge the crimes they've been convicted of at all. He calls them hostages of Joe Biden. Listen to Trump from Saturday. What they've done, and they ought to, you know what they ought to do? They ought to release the J6 hostages, they've suffered enough. They ought to release them. I call them hostages. Some people call them prisoners. I call them hostages. Release the J6 hostages, Joe. So January 6th has become J6 and release the J6 hostages, Joe. So there's that. And just for a little historical context, as the Supreme Court now will officially consider whether Trump should be barred from running again under the insurrection clause of the 14th Amendment to the Constitution, right? The court announced, maybe you missed this, this just happened. The court announced that it will hear that case on February 8th. Order your popcorn now. But for a little historical context, remember what Trump said about political violence if he lost the election when asked about that by a reporter before the election in September of 2020. Will you commit here today for a peaceful transferal of power after the election? Well, we're going to have to see what happens. You know that I've been complaining very strongly about the ballots, and the ballots are a disaster. I understand that, but people are rioting. Do you commit to making sure that there's a peaceful transferal of power? We want to have get rid of the ballots, and you'll have a very trans. We'll have a very peaceful. There won't be a transfer, frankly. There'll be a continuation. So maybe that soundbite from September 2020 will be offered as evidence to the Supreme Court. I don't know. But just a few thoughts there as we pass the anniversary of January 6th, 2021, now three years and two days ago. We'll get to how Trump criticized Nikki Haley's take on the Civil War on Saturday in that same speech with a take of his own that is arguably much, much worse than Haley's, if you can believe it. And so this election year begins with the courts and Democrats in Congress investigating Trump, plus Republicans in Congress investigating Biden. This includes a new report from Democrats on the House Oversight Committee issuing a report called White House for Sale, 
which purports to document that Trump received nearly $8 million while he was president from foreign governments, most of it from China, which could violate yet another clause of the Constitution known as the Emoluments Clause, even as House Republicans can't come up with evidence for their claim that Joe Biden profited from his son Hunter's overseas businesses during or after Biden's vice presidency. So we'll start on this new report with Luke Broadwater, who covers Congress for The New York Times, with a focus on congressional investigations. Luke, thanks for coming on. Happy January 8th, if I may say, and welcome back to WNYC. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, You wrote an article about this House Democrats report. What's new here about Trump uh, businesses getting paid by foreign governments? Well, I would say directionally, this was known, right? We uh, we knew that there had been a lot of concern about Trump violating the emoluments clause of the Constitution while he was president. But what this report does is it expands the knowledge that we had of how Donald Trump behaved with his businesses while in the White House, and it and it ex- expands it. And it documents it. So the Democrats, if you recall, fought for many years to try to get documents from Donald Trump's accounting firm, Mazers. They had to go all the way up to the Supreme Court for this. It was back and forth uh, court rulings. Eventually, they were victorious in getting a limited set of documents, really from only four businesses covering about two years. And but in those documents, they were able to show that during Trump's presidency, even as he says he turned over the day to day operations of the business to his son, that uh, they can document foreign dollars coming in to Trump while he was president. Now, the reason this is important now, and I believe the reason the Democrats put this out uh, headed into January is that the Demo- that the Republicans are ramping up to try to build an impeachment case against Joe Biden and say he is corrupted by foreign monies that went to Hunter Biden when Joe Biden was not president. And so what the Democrats are using this report to argue is that, you know, what's good for the kettle is also good for the pot. And so if you accuse Joe Biden of being corrupt because of monies that went to Hunter Biden, what about the monies that went directly to the Trump organization uh, while President Trump was president. So, you know, everything on the Hill has an element of politics to it. And and this serves as a counter argument on the Democrat side to the Republicans uh, investigation of Joe Biden. Yeah, that all makes sense. And we'll get as we go to some of the specifics from your very excellent article a few weeks ago. Uh, debunking some of the talking points that Republicans are using to claim Joe Biden was corrupt through his son, Hunter, um, with very specific evidence that you have and that's just publicly available. We'll get to that. But on on the Trump thing and and the Democrats um, on the House Oversight Committee report, I think you were kind of making this point. But is this really new? Didn't we know during his presidency that Trump hotels were being used for stays by foreign government officials who maybe wanted to cozy up to the president by staying at his properties rather than a a local Ramada Inn or something, things like that? 
Yeah, like I said, directionally, we knew broadly what was happening, right? And there's been a lot of reporting on this. I think the Washington Post a couple years ago documented $2 million at the Trump uh, at the Trump Hotel um, that was from foreign foreign governments. Uh, so this brings it up to almost, what was it, $8 million and or 7.8? And right. it, it adds the number of countries that, you know, bought hotel rooms or blocks of hotel rooms that had leases at various Trump properties. Um, now, what Eric Trump will say, who I emailed with on this story, is that, he, one, he can't help foreign uh, and he can't block foreign entities from staying at booking through Expedia or something at the hotel. So he said he uh, he, he argued, though, they gave the profits from these hotel stays to the treasury every year, which is, I think, about 10% of the of the monies that came in, and that a lot of the money came from a Chinese bank that uh, has a long-term lease at one of Trump's properties. Um, and so he, you know, he was arguing that there was something, nothing nefarious about this and that um, they didn't change any policies because of these monies that came in. Th that said, the Democrats say, if you read the emoluments clause of the Constitution, you you can't accept any foreign money without it getting cleared through Congress, and that Trump never did that. So even if he didn't change policy because of it, as Eric Trump says, that he um, had to go to Congress to accept any foreign dollars. So, um, you know, that's that's the state of play on that report. Yeah, and Trump wasn't the first rich guy with investments to become president. I think. The question here might be, in part, uh, whether he treated those investments differently than previous presidents with respect to walls to protect against real conflicts of interest or the appearance of conflicts of interest. Yes? Yeah, absolutely. They, they believe that upon assuming the presidency, he should have divested from any international business, um, that he should have not just you know turned the day-to-day -day operations of the companies over to family members, but that... He should have actually sold any any businesses that he wanted to uh, continue to do international business with. And that would be the proper sacrifice of a public servant. Um, you know, some of the I asked this to some of the Democrats who wrote the report and they said, look, you know, there were certain things I couldn't do anymore when I ran for Congress. I had to, you know, stop doing certain business activities or certain investments. And that, you know, that's what we require of public servants. If you want to be an international uh, you know, wealthy business person, you stay in that world. Don't run. Don't try to come into politics with all the with all those foreign entanglements. That was their argument. Right. And and I could see where Trump is arguing that perhaps there weren't any uh, acts of corruption based on this, but also where this becomes, you know, another act of a wannabe autocrat who wants to be able to profit individually from his time in power. And if he gets back into power and nothing happens as a result of the emoluments clause from his first term, uh, that it becomes even more, you know, Trump in pursuit of um, power and money for himself uh, if he's in office. I mean, in his defense, he said that he was really tough on China during his presidency, even though most of this $7.8 million was said to have come from China. He campaigned on being tough on China. He enacted tariffs on imports from China and other things. So 
when he says this is all innuendo with no actual corruption or foreign government success in influencing U.S. policy based on Trump uh, patronizing Trump businesses, maybe he's got a leg to stand on, you tell me. But I also remember, for example, when Kellyanne Conway, as an aide to then-President Trump, came out and said on camera that Americans should buy Ivanka Trump products as a way of supporting the president. I mean, that was so blatant. And so maybe a reflection of how the Trumps had and have a different attitude about mixing governments and personal prof, uh, government uh, governance and their personal bottom lines. Yeah, I mean, the Democrats allege that, you know, the, very much that Trump used the presidency to try to not only enrich himself, but also members of his family. You, you know, obviously, Jared Kushner landed a two, $2 billion investment deal with the Saudis right after leaving office. Um, so th their case was that they did not try to separate uh, uh, business from the functioning of government. That's what's alleged by the Democrats. Uh, and they, as an example, Jamie Raskin, who was the author of this report, often cites Abraham Lincoln, who received um, some gifts while in office from foreign governments that he wished to keep. And he came to Congress and asked, could I keep these gifts? And Congress told him no. And so he had to give them back. Huh. And so that, that's what they say Trump should have done. If he wanted to continue, uh, you know, th this long-term lease with the Bank of China, we're getting $5 million, that he should have come to Congress and asked for permission. And he never did that. And they say that's what the Constitution requires. You wrote that article last month assessing six major claims by the Republicans in the Biden impeachment inquiry and the disconnect between the way they're spinning things and the actual facts that they're supposedly based on. And it's really stunning. Let me ask you to talk us through just a couple of these because they're so stark. And I thought you did a great job of comparing facts to rhetoric. How about the one that the Republicans are selling as Hunter Biden claiming he shares half his overseas business profits with his father? Can you decode that for us as an example? Yeah, sure. So one of the if you analyze the Republican investigation into the Biden family, one of the points that they they're really trying to establish because they know in order to have a credible case of impeachment, they've got to trace the money from Hunter Biden to Joe Biden to say that Joe Biden was being enriched uh, and that he had lied about it. And Joe Biden has always said that he, um, you know, had this sort of wall with his son and they, they weren't sharing any money and they were, you know, th this wasn't enriching Joe Biden. And so, but what you'll find is that some of the evidence the Republicans are putting forth will come from text ma messages or lines from text messages that lack context when you read the full thread or do some reporting where you interview the people involved about what this actually meant. And one of those is that um, there's a Hunter Biden at one point is is texting with his daughter and there there's a discussion about work. And he says, don't worry, I won't make you give give me half the money, half your money like Pop did. Um, and the Republicans have seized on this to say that, look, here's evidence that Hunter was sending basically half of all the money he's getting to Joe. And that does seem kind of, you know, damning on its face. Right. But once you once you look into it some more and interview everyone involved, you understand what the reference was that uh, they were referring to 
uh, Hunter's college job and that as part of his college job, he had to give half the money to help pay for room and board. Oh, um, and that right, which is very different than splitting, you know, half the money from Cause his father Kazakhstan, was paying Kazakhstan his tuition. Or, or yes, yeah. correct. And so he yeah, was so asking Hunter to chip context. in. So different. Yes. All right, one more. How about the phrase that you say is becoming ubiquitous among House Republicans, 10% for the big guy. Can you explain what that refers to and what the evidence actually shows about that? Yeah. So if you look at the, the transcripts from the people involved in that um, in the public statements from the people involved in that in that um, email, um, basically, the person who sent it had a, sort of an aspirational idea that while, you know, this is before Joe Biden runs for president, that maybe they can get Hunter's dad involved in some of these businesses to give them, you know, higher, higher name recognition or more cachet. And he says that never materializes, that they wouldn't, that 10% wouldn't go to Joe, that, and in fact, that no deal ever came about, um, that any money came from the split. So basically, that's an email where somebody is suggesting something that could happen, but it never happens and is never acted upon. And so, you know, 10 percent of the big guy is is an idea that was suggested, but never, never happens. And so there wasn't some sort of 10 percent cut from for Joe Biden from this money, um, according to everybody involved in that email who has been interviewed. I want to touch on what Trump said in Iowa on Saturday, criticizing Nikki Haley for leaving slavery out of her original answer to a question about the cause of the Civil War. What Trump said Saturday might be even much worse to my ear. It reminds me of when after the Charlottesville neo-Nazi, neo-Klan march and riot in support of a Robert E. Lee statue, Trump said there were good people on both sides of that, one of his most infamous quotes. Here he seems to say the same thing about the Confederacy itself, which, of course, wanted to secede to keep enslavement. Listen. Abraham Lincoln, of course, if you negotiated it, you probably wouldn't even know who Abraham Lincoln was. Uh, he would have been president, but he would have been president. And he would have been he wouldn't have been the Abraham Lincoln would have been different. But that would have been OK. It's uh, it would have been a, a thing that and I, I know it very well. I know the whole process that they went through and they just couldn't get along. And that would have been something that could have been negotiated and they wouldn't have had that problem. Could have been negotiated and they wouldn't have had that problem, the Civil War. So number one, Luke, he makes it sound like Lincoln fought the Civil War so he could become an icon. Uh, you know, if Lincoln didn't go to war, nobody would have remembered who he was. He would have been just another president. But on the main point that the war could have been avoided through negotiation, does that mean by allowing the South to keep holding human beings as property? Because that would have been much um, worse of a way if he that's really what he means to curry white Southern votes in the primaries than what Nikki Haley said. Yeah, I don't, <laughs> um, I don't think anybody should trust Donald Trump for history lessons. Um, he, really? you know, as, as we've seen in the past, he, you know, thinks dead people are alive. He, he confuses basic facts of, of American history all the time. Um, so the, um, it's hard for me to interpret exactly what he's saying, but it does sound like that he is suggesting that the South and the North could have cut some sort of deal and 
and I don't know, continue. Does that mean continue slavery in some states and and not in others? I'm I, I'm not sure what he's saying there. To be honest, it didn't. That doesn't make a lot of sense. But it, the, I do think that's a worse answer than what than what Nikki Haley said, which was Nikki Haley just said a word salad and then quickly corrected it um, once she realized her mistake. This this I'm not sure exactly what this is. Yeah, uh, you don't think Trump read. Um... The book on Lincoln, Team of Rivals, or Steve Inskeep's new book on Lincoln. You don't think he's gone through those uh, hundreds of pages? No, I, I no, I do not. He is famously not much of a reader. That's uh, that's that's shocking to me. That's really shocking to me. Um, all right. So also, I guess, sort of related on this Monday after the January sixth anniversary, are you alarmed for the sake of democracy? You're a reporter. You're not a commentator, so you're not allowed to save your alarm. But if Trump is labeling as hostages rather than convicted criminals, January 6th rioters, people actually convicted of things like obstructing an official proceeding and seditious conspiracy, and Elise Stefanik, the Republican member of Congress from upstate New York, is labeling them as hostages too, um, the the— does this indicate to you as a journalist a way that Trump might govern if he's reelected? Yes, I think so. I mean, first of all, we should just correct the misinformation. There is not there are not hostages being held by Joe Biden who were innocent people uh, who are political prisoners. That's just false. Um, I think sometimes uh, some on the right try to stretch uh, what's already a false narrative into what's just straight up demagoguery. Um, there's this idea that there's all these sort of nonviolent protesters who just walk through the Capitol who are being held in long prison sentences. That's also completely false. The people who have gotten long prison sentences are people who are accused of assaulting police and convicted of assaulting police, or they're people who are accused of plotting and engaging in a seditious conspiracy to overthrow the government. Those are very serious charges. The The vast majority of January 6th cases are for minor offenses like trespassing, and those people have not done jail time. They've been charged and then released. And so this idea that there's all these nonviolent Trump supporters who are being held in long prison sentences is just false. Um, that's, that's just not true. Um, moreover, uh, to use the word hostages makes it seem like there's some sort of rogue element in the government that's snatching up Trump supporters and 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 holding them in jail. And that's that's also just not true. So, yes, it's 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 dangerous rhetoric. Um, it, it's, it's perhaps not surprising. And I think if you talk to people close to Trump, what they will say is it shows on Trump's behalf. He's actually worried about the democracy arguments that it is having an effect with uh, swing voters, with moderate voters, with sort of the the the, the slice of the Republican Party that uh, is more interested in taxes and economics and not not really totally devoted to Trump, that they do see what happened on January sixth still is very bad, and they do there's many who do, who do see him as a threat to democracy, and so he's he, what he's trying to do is muddy the waters and make it that Joe Biden is also a threat to democracy, and that if they're both threats to democracy, then that, in his view, would uh, help his his reelection chances. Luke Broadwater covers Congress, especially investigations. 
for the New York Times. Thanks for starting your week with us, Luke. Really, really appreciated this good segment. Thank you. Brian Lehrer, A Daily Politics Podcast, is an excerpt from my live daily radio show, The Brian Lehrer Show, on WNYC Radio, 10 a.m. to noon Eastern Time, if you want to listen live at WNYC.org. Thanks for listening today. Talk to you next time.